Welcome to the Entrepreneur Cast, your source for tactical lessons in entrepreneurship from a cast of entrepreneurs. I'm Jason Demers. And I'm Sam McRoberts. And today we're going to talk about how survivorship bias distorts our view of successful entrepreneurs. I'm actually really excited for this one because this is something that I've not, not just thought about a lot, but read about a lot over the years. And I, I used to fall into this trap, looking for examples of people who had succeeded and attempting to model my own success based on the stories that they told about their success. And unfortunately, that led me to learn about survivorship bias, which is essentially looking to the survivors to tell you what you should do, instead of looking for the non-survivors to tell you what you shouldn't do. And in a lot of cases, it's looking to the ones that failed that will give you more effective learning than looking necessarily to the ones that survive. Does that make right. sense? Yeah. yeah. So when we say survivors, I guess we're talking about, um, you know, in, a, in an entrepreneurial context, that would be like the entrepreneurs who succeeded, right? Or the businesses that did rather than the businesses that failed. Exactly. And I think it's also important to look at, you know, many entrepreneurs have had many or multiple failures before they hit a big success. And so traits that entrepreneurs have they could have previously led to failure. It's not that they always result in success, right? Sure. There's, I mean, in an entrepreneurship, right? And this is something that I feel like more and more people are willing to credit, but luck, luck is a thing. There's random opportunities, people you bump into, uh, things that occur for you at the right time in the right place. And yes, like you need to be prepared and ready to take action when luck strikes, but there's there's an awful lot of luck involved. But unfortunately, the brain does not like the concept of luck. The brain likes taking credit for everything. And so what you end up getting is if you ask somebody, hey, man, you, you're really successful. Like, How did you build this successful company? What they're going to tell you is the story, the resume version of what happened that they've put together retrospectively in their head that leaves out all kinds of shit anything that makes them look bad, anything that doesn't follow their narrative thread, anything they forgot, anything that they think wasn't relevant, even if maybe it was, like so much gets left out of that that beautiful <laughs> retroactive history. And you're probably missing a tremendous amount of useful information. And what you're getting is just such a, such a biased view of what really happened that it's not really helpful, at least not in isolation. And I think that's the key. Yeah. Well, so here's here's an interesting example that that I found that I think sort of illustrates survivorship bias for, you know, if you're kind of still wondering what this is. This example is from planes in World War II with the British military. So the British military had access to a bullet-resistant material that could cover some but not all parts of each plane. And their original approach had been, okay, let's look at all the bombers that are coming back that are making it back from their bombing runs and see where all the bullet holes are. And what we're going to do is we're going to put bullet resistant material on those parts of the planes, because this must be where our planes are getting shot. And it, that, so, that seems, that seems reasonable, right? Like that's a, you know, a reasonable gut check. Like, Oh wow, we're getting shot here a lot. Let's put armor. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Right. So you might be thinking, yeah, what's wrong with that? So here's the thing. The planes that were returning 
with those bullet holes didn't need extra armor there. Why? Because they made it. They survived. What they weren't seeing and calculating was all the planes that did not make it back because of where they did get shot. They were getting shot in the engines and in the critical area, you know, various other critical compartments of the plane that, that critically, you know, that crippled the plane and made it crash and it, it didn't make it back. So it never made it back in order to get that bullet resistant padding added to it. So this guy named Abraham Wald, is that his name? Yeah. Abraham, Abraham Wald. Wald. He was a statistician in world war two. And he said, Hey guys, I got an idea. What if we take our bulletproof material and we put it on all the parts of the planes that are coming back that did not get shot up? Genius. Yeah. And, and, and what happened was, and I couldn't find stats on, on the effect that this had, but, but as the story goes, it improved the survivor, the survivability of these planes because they could now resist or at least be, uh, be a little more resistant to shots in those critical components because of the because the bulletproof material was put in more strategic areas. Yes. So that's what, that's like, an example of survivorship bias. And this is a perfect example because it shows exactly, exactly what the risks are and how easy it is to go with that perhaps initial gut reaction, right? Something, something survived and you think, Oh, I can learn X from that. And unfortunately, if you jump to X, you forget about Y and Z and whatever the other options happen to be. And sometimes it takes a statistician, apparently, to look at it and say, actually, what you're missing is this. And I think it's exactly the same way with companies. There's that tendency to look at a company that survived and say, aha, this is what you need to do to succeed. Whereas the actual thing you should be looking for is what are the companies that failed and why? So I know how not to fail. Because success has such a large component of luck. But Failure, you know, bad luck may also be a factor in failure, but more often than not, I feel like failure is also a matter of just poor decision-making, timing, and not accounting for risk factors. Like there are things that you can definitively learn, especially when you have a decent data set of failures. And of course, statistically, there are always more failures than winners when it comes to businesses, especially in a, you know, a winner-take-all vertical. Absolutely. Sam, have you got any, can you give me an example of any entrepreneurs or businesses that you, that are very successful and maybe give me some traits, you know, that that sort of stand out about that? Let's start with an entrepreneur. So I don't know if this is still the thing, but at one point in Silicon Valley, it was kind of the, the thing to be the CEO who modeled Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was so terribly impressive that other CEOs decided to model of all things, his behavior being a loud, bombastic asshole as if that was somehow magically the key to Steve Jobs' success. Now, you know, all right, maybe that's reasonable. Steve Jobs was so particular and eccentric and uh, bombastic is the word that comes to mind, but he he was not like what you were taught a CEO should typically be like, but he's so successful, such an outlier in the success department that people felt like, well, maybe if I model this, this will help me to be successful like Steve. The reality is probably that he was successful despite being that way. You know, there were probably other elements of his nature, his ability to focus and his attention to detail and his ability to use systems thinking and particularly to think from a user perspective about how things would be interacted with. I think those are probably more more worth modeling. And I think he had people around him who were able to serve as buffers between Steve the asshole and Steve the genius and everybody else. And that's... 
yeah, that's a perfect example of, of that survivorship bias. Like looking at Steve's success and thinking I should model what I can see and not thinking through all the things you can't see. I, I was thinking about how I think this is an example of of salience. So in, in one of our previous episodes, we were talking about cognitive biases and salience was the one where the most unique or extraordinary attribute of somebody is the one that you will focus on and remember. And so the example we gave in that episode was maybe you meet somebody and they've just got a really big nose and now you, you sort of think about them as the person with the big nose. Okay. So because Steve Jobs was so bombastic, as Sam, as you put it, I think people were were tending to latch on to that attribute of him and saying that is Steve Jobs is bombastic. Steve Jobs is successful. Thus, bombasticism equals yes. success. Cor- correlation right? and not causation. Yeah, yeah. So you think it was despite his his personality rather yes. than because of it. I think that aspect of his personality was a second order effect. Uh, a genius is often quick to become frustrated. And if they haven't learned to regulate their emotions well, that leads to outbursts. And that was Steve. He was absolutely a genius. And he was usually many steps ahead of other people in terms of thinking things through. And he was impatient, not a terrible, not a terribly good emotional regulator. And so that led to that. And so there's the tendency, because that's what you could see and you hear those stories about him being that way. It's like, oh, well, maybe that's how I need to be. And what you're not thinking about or seeing is what you're not thinking about and seeing is the other side of that. And that's that's the whole correlation and not causation. Sometimes things appear together and they're not actually connected, right? You could say that every day people die and every day the sun rises and therefore the sun rising is killing people. Correlation, but not causation. <laughs> so tell me this. If let's say I'm an entrepreneur and I want to study some, you know, companies and entrepreneurs who I admire. And I can make a list of the traits that I think those people have or those companies have. How do I know which ones are the ones that actually led to success versus the ones yes. that did that detracted from it or, or harmed it? So I think there's two sides to this. The first is getting multiple data points. I think there's a tendency to hone in on a single source of data and to follow that. Like, hey, I want to model Steve Jobs and Apple, so that's my data set. And so you look at what you can see and you model it. Unfortunately, that's more likely to lead you to correlations and not necessarily causation. To find causation, you need to look across disparate data sets for common threads. So in this case, I would say find a handful of companies that you want to learn from and model and look to see if there are things across each that they share in common. Did each company do X or Y? Uh, and that could, like the exact data points are are going to be you know, widely variant depending on what it is you're trying to learn. But by looking for multiple data points that you can compare and look for overlap or common threads, that's the way to get to some sort of significance in your conclusions. And, you know, I I refer to Tim Ferriss a lot, but this is exactly what he does with his podcast, you know, in meta learning, he's trying to interview and learn from high performers to find common threads. It's not that he's going to listen to and take action on a single thing said by one person, but, you know, if he interviews 500 people 
And a hundred of them say, well, we all read this book, or we all thought about things this way, or we all, you know, have this type of routine. Now, maybe. Now you're starting to see a consistent pattern. And that's something that, if nothing else, is worth testing to see if it shows the effect you would expect. But if you're just so, looking at a single data point, you're going to end up with probably bad data. Okay. So here's what I'm envisioning in my head. I'm envisioning that I have a, an Excel spreadsheet in front of me and I have you know 10 columns and each column is the name of an entrepreneur or maybe a company that I admire that I consider successful. And each row is, uh, I'm going to list a, a trait. Maybe it's charismatic, maybe it's bombastic, maybe it's um, respectful. You know, I don't know. I'm just going to list a bunch of traits. And now I'm going to go through my my Excel spreadsheet, and I'm going to put an X in each cell where I believe that entrepreneur or that company has uh, a certain trait. When I get to the end of of that process, could I look at how many X's I had for each trait? and use that as sort of a guiding principle of these are the most important traits then according to the companies that I admire that I should try to build my brand around? Does that, if that makes sense? I don't know if I would say most important traits, but you could say most common traits. This, this trait seems to be common across most, if not all, of the high performers in the space I'm looking to model. So how can I improve that trait in myself? That's, I think that's a sound line of questioning and something that you could then test. Be like, all right, well, here's the actions that I'm going to take to try and improve this trait in myself. And then I'm going to see if I can measure an increase in whatever, performance, uh, output of the company, however it is. But I, I, I would actually generally go deeper. So specific entrepreneurs, I think it's better to look at how they, how they think and the decisions, the, you know, their decision-making process, the way they go about whether it's hiring or firing or planning or saying yes or no to things, I, I think their decision-making process in particular would be helpful to analyze and model. Looking at companies, that's different. It could be a lot of things. It could be how much money they raised and when, where they were started, the track record of the people who were involved, the, the timing, You know, where did this company and what they did sit in the overall curve of that specific product or space. I think you could dig into a lot of data in that regard. But this is this is only this is only one half. This is looking at the survivors, the success stories. So I was just about to say, okay, a couple of questions. Well, why don't we just start with how would you look at the at the the ones who failed, and how would you draw lessons from those? What what would be your process if you were sitting down to do this? Sure, I think there's a lot of ways you could mine for the data on failures. You could look for announcements companies that started and then that never went on to be anything you could you could probably have somebody mine actual like company formation and dissolution data and start getting a list of companies that have failed you could always reach out and do you know an actual like interview process go up, go to all these founders who started a company and shut it down and ask them what went wrong i also think you can probably find a lot of case studies i'm sure a lot of people have already done this for a number of businesses and industries and you could find data but again this is another one where what you find may not be correct. Somebody may say, well, my company be failed because of X. 
and they chose X because X is the thing that makes them look the least bad. <laughs> Maybe in reality, their company failed because they were going through a messy divorce and their mind just wasn't on it. Maybe the company failed because they were an asshole and they couldn't retain really good employees to save their lives. And so the company folded. Maybe they decided that they had to be a premium priced product and the market just wasn't having any of it. Like I, I think there's a lot of what somebody says and what the reality is sifting through that is is hard. But again, it's one where you can look at threads. You could say, all right, well, out of these 10 companies that started around this time in this space, looks like only two of them survived. What did the other eight do that was different? Was their pricing different? Was the location they formed different? Did they have uh, you know, founders or founding teams that were significantly different? Was the timing different? They, yeah, there's there's no. a lot of things to look at. There's no like one right and wrong way, but it's the it's the mindset. It's it's not latching on to what seems so clear cut and looking for the alternatives. Back in 2013, TechCrunch published an article called "The Decline and Fall of Flowtab: A Startup Story." Have you read this, Sam? I haven't. I don't, I don't think I've ever even heard of Flowtab, or if I have, I've long since forgotten it. Okay, so Flowtab was a company that I wish existed today. And and if something like it exists and you're listening, please email me and let me know because this is an idea for an app that I have wanted for so long. And it's one that in in infinite other universes, I went and created this app and that and I and that was my business. <laughs> because it is exactly the kind of thing that I that I want. I just don't have the time and resources to do another business right now or else I would be doing this. But Flowtab they they published a death chronicle of sorts. And they they told the story of how they sort of caught fire and rose to quick success, but then almost immediately crashed, burned, and flamed out and died. And they sort of recount what we did, what worked, and what didn't work. And it's a, it's a story directly from the founders. And it's a fascinating read on TechCrunch. And if you just go to Google and type like FlowTab TechCrunch, I'm sure you'll find it there. I'll check it out. Um, I've read it two or three times just because it's a really great, it's a great read. It's a long one, probably 3000 words or something like that. But um, in any case, what, what really interested me about it was just how they, they go into, you know, what worked and what didn't and how they crashed and burned. And, and the fact that it's an app that I actually have thought about would be so cool. It makes me sad that it died because I do think it, it could do really well, but I think that whoever builds this app would need a lot of resources to make it do well. Anyway, I, I just had to throw that out there because you know, if you want a, a good read that's and good. you want to learn from a failure, that's you can read, like you said, Sam, from these case studies, and this is a really great one. It's a great, great yeah, example so, of so that. One thing you might search for would be like company name that you know is shut down and postmortem. Like because a lot of times that'll that'll happen. Somebody will start a company run it for a while, shut it down, and maybe they write a postmortem. They write about after it died, what did you know, what did we learn from it? What were the takeaways? You could probably also get this, you know, some some venture capitalists write up postmortems on things they invested in that ended up going bust. You could also just look at the investment portfolio of any typical VC company over their different portfolios and see what did they invest in, what did they think was going to be good that ended up shutting down, folding selling for less than they raised, you know, however you want to decide, define their failure, but looking through that data to see, to see common threads. 
And to be frank, I think in a lot of instances, you're not really going to find anything. You're going to look through these and there's going to be a lot of things that might have been at play. And this is unfortunately the messy truth of reality is that even though our brains want things to be very simple and black and white and binary, most of the time they're multivariate. There's tons and tons of different things and it's almost impossible to figure out how they overlapped and weighted and what effect each piece had. But the the best you can do usually is to look for common threads and then form a hypothesis and run a test. Take it, you know, approach it like a scientist. So I'm a really tactical thinker. I like to think in terms of what what do I do next? <clears throat> so I'm thinking about, you know, okay, I, I want to, you know, I, I want to think about what made successful entrepreneurs successful and and what detracted from their success can you give me can you can you give me a, a playbook for what i can do like my, my excel example where i sit down and i make a spreadsheet you know you were kind of lukewarm on that idea can can you give me the sam playbook i don't i don't know if lukewarm is the right the right word it, it, it's more that what you described was kind of a qualitative measure and not a quantitative one. You know, emotionally like, all right, well, what characteristics do I think these entrepreneurs share? And you're giving a very subjective judgment by you analyzing what you think their character traits are. So I I think if I were to do this, I would try to do it in a more quantitative fashion, which is pull up as much hard data on the company as I could. When did it start? How much money did they raise? How long did they exist? How many founders were there? What's the background of the founder? Could I score and weight those in some fashion? How many competitors were there? Where did they fit in the space of their competitors? What did their pricing look like? I see. You're, you want to use objective data? As much as possible. Not so much subjective assessments of one's traits or qualities or characteristics. Yes. I mean, wherever possible, like I prefer to find objective data if it's available because you're going to end up with better decisions, probably. If you, especially if you have objective data across multiple companies and types and types of data, because with, with qualitative, with subjective data, it's squishy. You're, you're, there's just, there's so much bias in that type of data that it can be really hard to find truth. Not that there's nothing to be learned from it, but it's more, I don't know, it's just more, it's more soft. It's going to require a lot more testing to, you know, sift the, the wheat from the chaff. But like my, that, that, if possible, would be my process. Like if I was looking to get into a particular business space, I would want to do a very thorough dive into who's already there. Like, are they doing? Are they doing well? Is the pie much larger than what's currently being captured? What are the complaints? You know, if these companies already exist and are doing stuff, what are customers already saying about it? Are there negative reviews? What are people complaining about? Has it been mentioned on Reddit? Looking for looking for that. Looking for feedback on what existing companies are doing right and wrong can help you to succeed. And then looking at companies that failed can also help you to you know, avoid failure, like running out of money. I would say running out of money, not carefully controlling your burn rate is probably one of the biggest things that a lot of startups do wrong. They just don't manage their money well. And then the close second would be product market fit. It's very dangerous to go into a business thinking you already know in advance exactly how everything should be done and not 
constantly testing and tweaking and asking for feedback and like learning as you go. And a lot of entrepreneurs are very arrogant. They think they know everything. They think they know how things should be done. It's their way or the highway. That's what gets them in trouble. They're too inflexible and not open to changing course as data dictates. And in a lot of cases, they won't even look for the data. They don't, they don't want anybody to contradict what they think is the right way. So I think those are two places to start. And I think just being the, being the type of person who asks questions, who looks at things and tries really hard to see both sides. Like if what I'm seeing is X, what might I not be seeing? What are the, what are the other factors that could be at play that aren't immediately apparent? And I think wherever possible, talking to people, talking to entrepreneurs, talking to people at companies, like go out and talk to people and see if you can get some feedback and look for those threads. You know, if, if people who worked at companies that failed are consistently saying like, yeah, the culture, the culture was shit. There was too much infighting. Everybody was constantly undercutting everybody else because of the way the company handled promotions and reviews and whatnot, right? Like this, this used to be a huge problem at Microsoft. Microsoft used stack ranking. Each of their teams and, you know, even sometimes sub portions of those teams, everybody in the team was ranked. I think it was uh, quarterly or biannually, but in the lowest, the lowest ranked person in each unit was canned. You're out the door. And they kept only the higher performers and the highest performing people were given bigger bonuses or promoted up to other things. But on one hand, that seems wise. Like, hey, we're, we're moving up the people who are best and we're getting rid of the people who are worst. But what it actually resulted in at Microsoft was teams infighting for resources and trying to undercut other people so that they would get more funding and they would be stack ranked higher and they would look better than their peers. And so instead of working together collaboratively to make the company better as a whole, you had all these little mini camps fighting each other. Sounds like a toxic as fuck environment. Extremely toxic. And this was like, this was a known problem at Microsoft for a long time. And it took getting rid of Steve Ballmer and putting in Satya Nadella as the CEO to fix it. He got rid of the stack ranking and look at their stock, man. Microsoft went from being stagnant for a long time to like quadrupling or quintupling their stock in a relatively short period of time because they got rid of the toxic structure. And I mean, I'd be surprised if they don't still have some remnants of it. But now, you know, without that piece in place, they can do something different. So but, a lot of a lot of leaders might have might have seen what Microsoft was doing and said, "Hey, Microsoft is a big, successful, well-known brand and company." And let's model look, what they, they're doing. They, yeah, they have this stack ranking thing. Let's do that too. Whereas what we learned was when we cut out the stack ranking bullshit, that you know it sort of unleashed them. It removed some shackles on them. So that wasn't a good thing. It was a very bad thing holding them back. Yes. And there's, I, this is something, you know, as humans, we tend to slip easily into ruts. And especially, you know, as a company grows, you're bringing people in and you're teaching them how things are at your company. And in some cases, it's just like a game of telephone. Like the person teaching the new person has no idea why things are this way. They just know that they are and they have been for as long as they're there. And therefore, that's how they, they must be. And so people like lose touch with why things are the way they are. And there's this common thread of like you fall into the rut and you just don't question it. And maybe things could be completely different and much better if somebody were to just say, hey, why are things this way? And follow that thread until you either find somebody who can explain it and their reasoning is good, or if nobody can explain it, propose a test to do something different. But don't just don't just assume that because things are the way they are, that's a good thing. Or because, you know, this company survived and they did X, that X must be a good thing. Like don't yeah, take survivorship with a huge grain of salt 
and make sure you look at the opposite as well. So if I'm an entrepreneur or I'm, I'm thinking about becoming one and I'm listening to this episode and I'm thinking, what are the bullet point action items or whatever that I can take out of this? What are the actionable sort of next steps? Here's, here's sort of what, how I would boil these down. Let me know if this, let me know how this sounds to you. I think I would start by doing competitor analysis or research. Who's currently in the space that I'm looking at getting into and draw up their, you know, like a SWOT analysis, their strengths and weaknesses and, and opportunities and threats and so on. Next, I would look at who came before and is no longer there. So in other words, who failed in this space and why did they fail? And of the ones who are still alive, what objective pieces of data can I find on them? Are they publicly funded? Are they crowdfunded, privately funded, whatever? And start putting together as much data as I can on who's in the space right now and who was in the space but no longer is, i.e. the failures. And those would sort of be my steps one and two. And then what would you say after that? Would you say just sort of take that information, absorb it, and- Sure. I would say- I would yeah. say look at the look at you're looking for common threads and you're looking for and uncommon threads. So are there any things that the failures and the survivors both did consistently? If both companies did those things consistently, then either A, they're table stakes and you know everybody needs to do them just as a baseline, or B, they mean nothing and nobody needs to be doing them. And then look for things that the survivors are doing that the failures did not. And vice versa, and that may give you clues to you know if if the survivors if all of the survivors did X and none of the failures did X, that seems to indicate that X is worth doing. If all of the failures did Y and none of the survivors did Y, that seems to indicate that Y is something you shouldn't be doing. And, and again, in both cases, you can test, but you're looking for those patterns and threads, and you're looking specifically for patterns shared by everybody, and then patterns unique to the successes uh, as opposed to the failures. Got it. Okay. So I'm a lazy person, <laughs> and I don't like to do a lot of research. Can I find this stuff on Google? Probably. I mean, I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's tons of things like this. I mean, postmortems, case studies. Like I know Harvard Business has tons of business case studies on companies that have both succeeded and failed. That would be one one place you could look. But really, like, I, I don't think you should be an entrepreneur if you're not willing to go dig through data and understand something deeply. Like seat of the pants entrepreneurship is a it's a coin toss, and that's not. That's not really a wise approach. Agreed. Well, cool. I think I've got a, a, a clear view on on sort of how I would approach this. You know, if I was starting out in a new industry, a new niche, or whatever. I, I guess mean, I would. Yeah, like I'd, I'd try and boil it back to be very careful of hero worship. Be very careful of looking at success stories as models, and they may be. I mean, there's almost certainly some things that you can model from the success stories, but there may simply be a lot more that you can learn from and model off of the failures. Interesting. I like it. Well, that's been a good discussion. Uh, you know, I, I think that it's really important to to see who not only who has been successful, but but pay just as much attention to those who have not, because I think you can learn just as much, if not if not more, from the ones who were not successful, because. Yep. It's important to remember that there were many more who were unsuccessful compared to the ones that were. So good stuff. So yeah, I think that that pretty much wraps it up then, Sam. 
Uh, as always, uh, if you are listening and you you found this chat helpful, hit us up on Twitter. We love to chat. And you can also shoot us an email at theentrepreneurcast at gmail.com. And we'll, we, we check our emails and we'll, we'll, we'll get back to you fast. And if you like what you hear, leave a review, rate the podcast, share it with your friends, get the word out. The more people who hear it, the more people we can help. So that's cool. what we're here for. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time.